Hey everyone, the credits you're about to hear were recorded just a couple of hours before the storms came through Kentucky on Friday night and Saturday morning. I'm sure everyone's heard about it by now. People have been looking for ways to donate, ways to help. So if you're uh, compelled to do so and, and you want to help out, check out the show notes. There will be links to organizations on the ground in western Kentucky as well as the state relief fund for the tornado victims. So everyone in the pod crew is okay. We are uh, safe. We're uh, on a different side of the state, but there's a lot of need and um, uh, a lot of recovery. So if you feel compelled to help, if you are able to help, it'll be greatly, greatly appreciated. All right, here come the credits. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. We want to start, as always, by thanking our new patrons. Nicholas Havlock, Rianne McCool, Ravi M., Victoria Petrosino, Sarah the Science Dork, Donover Shrupp, and Vaguely Vega. We couldn't do this without you. All of our patrons get access to our Patreon-exclusive Discord. There, you can chat with us about the show, or whatever else is on your mind. Patrons also get bloopers, behind-the-scenes audio, and weekly updates on the show. Different tiers get merch like stickers, t-shirts, and coffee mugs, too. Sign up to support the show at patreon.com forward slash 13pod. Speaking of merch, we have a new merch store over at TeePublic. Look for the link in our show notes. The old Redbubble merch site will be going away. At TeePublic, we have new designs, including some old Olive Hill ones, like our I'm going to tell you a ghost story shirts, and also new religious trauma designs. They're shirts that just say religious trauma. The best part of this new shop is that everything is 30% off for the month of December. You've still got a little bit of time before Christmas. Head over to TeePublic and check them out. Before we get into the show, we want to tell you about some friends that we met at a podcast conference back in the summer. Meet our friends Mary and Shelley from the Latter-day Lesbian Podcast. Shelley is a divorced mother of seven dealing with leaving the Mormon church and coming to terms with her sexuality. Mary is a recovering evangelical Christian and a career lesbian, as Shelley puts it. Together, they're processing a bunch of religious BS, uh, trauma, and navigating a romantic relationship through a podcast that's raw, honest, and funny as fuck. Check out Latter-day Lesbian wherever you listen to podcasts. We loved meeting them, and we love listening to their show. We think you'll love it, too. Latter-day Lesbians is wherever you listen to podcasts. Stick around for their trailer after the show. Just a heads up that this is a rebroadcast of last year's holiday episode, while we take a much-needed break. We'll see you again in January with a brand new episode of 13. This is Home for the Holidays Part 1. On with the show. The drive home was longer than I remembered. Or, maybe I was just dreading my destination. I left the city early this morning as the first hints of gray, overcast sky appeared over the lake. Snow had started falling overnight. It's falling in my headlights, making the horizon a little fuzzy. Southbound from Lincoln Park, Lake Michigan to my left, the Chicago skyline to my right. 
seven hours of interstate ahead of me. It's Saturday morning, December 18th, a week before Christmas. Ordinarily, I'd be fast asleep at this time on a Saturday morning, resting up for next week, the busiest week of the year. I work at the corporate office for a big apparel brand. The week before Christmas is out of control in our industry. The crush of online orders, our distributors at full capacity, last-minute orders from retailers out of stock and trying to get one more shipment before Christmas Eve. From the middle of October until the end of the year, it's 14-hour days and a crushing lack of sleep. We have a saying around the office. It weeds out the week. And it all culminates in these few days before Christmas. It's when you show what you're made of. And... It's when you lock down the the end-of-the-year bonus. Bonuses are based on the volume of sales you've been able to push for the year. There are no caps on the bonus. This is what we work for all year. Last year was my third year with the company, and my bonus was equivalent to three months' pay, the highest in my department. And it usually means that I'm still at the office until 7 or 8 p.m. on Christmas Eve. The only person in recent history to beat me was Annalisa. She's the closest thing I have to a nemesis. Rumor has it, the year before I started, she made five months' pay for her annual bonus. She was promoted up to the finance department during my first year, so we've never competed head-to-head. I'm determined to beat her, though. Because of the way my job is structured, I haven't gone home for Christmas in a few years. I go home on other holidays. It's not like I never see my family. I just don't get a lot of free time this time of the year. But when you're stuck in an office with the same people for weeks and weeks on end, sometimes you make connections there. Paul and I worked together on the sales floor when I started with the company. And the first holiday season almost broke me. I wasn't ready for it. But Paul and I really clicked. And after one of those long days that turned into a long night, he asked me to get a drink with him. We kept it casual for a long time. We work in a high-rise downtown, and there are a couple of vacant floors in the building where we would sneak away when we needed to scratch an itch. But over time, we got more serious. We stopped sneaking off during work and started staying over at each other's apartments. Then we moved in together. And since neither of us could go home, we started celebrating Christmas together building our own traditions since we couldn't get away to see family. I liked Christmas in the city, especially Chicago. I'm from a little town, and no matter how long I live here, the magic of watching snow start falling from the 12th floor of my apartment building, catching the light on the streets below, turning the city into shades of orange and white, It never gets old. And having someone to share it with, I felt like I had finally arrived. 
A couple years ago, Paul got a promotion and moved up to the finance team, three floors above the sales department. That's where Annalisa, my nemesis, worked. It was actually kind of nice to be in different departments now, even if I did have to hear him talk about her every now and then. It just made me want to beat her record all the more. Paul's promotion came with a big pay raise, way bigger than I thought it would be. He was a real decision maker now. But two days ago, Paul didn't come home. It was like you see in the movies. A team of detectives marched into the building and came up the elevator to the executive floor. Someone came down and told everyone to go home for the day. I tried calling Paul, but I got no answer. Later that day, I got a call from a detective. He asked me to come down to the FBI field office to answer questions about whether Paul had ever mentioned money missing from the company. Had he made any suspicious purchases? Was there ever any money that he wasn't able to explain? Paul was being held while they determined whether charges should be filed for embezzlement, for making false reports to shareholders. When I left the FBI field office, I had an all-office email waiting in my personal inbox, explaining that we were all on indefinite leave. So I went home to wait for Paul, to find out what happened. In the meantime, news started coming out in the business press. Someone in the company had tipped off the FBI that some of the executives had been embezzling money, covering it up by cooking the books and defrauding the shareholders. The company was broke. I wasn't sure whether or not I still had a job, or whether there would even be a company to go back to. My fiancé... My fiancé might have been one of them. I looked around at the apartment. What if this was all stolen money? There weren't going to be any end-of-year bonuses this year. That was two days ago. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I needed to get out. I'm practically alone on the road. The John Hancock Tower, dead ahead, looming high above Lakeshore Drive. It's a week before Christmas, and all of a sudden, I have all the time in the world. So for the first time since I'd moved away to the big city, I was going home for Christmas. And I couldn't escape the feeling that I was limping back to my little town, wounded and defeated, like a bird that dared to fly too high, my tail between my legs. I'm mixing too many animal metaphors, but you get it. The snow tapered off as soon as I was out of the city, and the sky started to clear. The sun was up over the horizon. It was full morning. The radio said they were expecting the snowstorm to intensify. An arctic blast of cold air would blow through, and with it, a lot more snow than first expected. I turned off the radio and just drove in silence for a while. 
About an hour outside the city, I spaced out. When I came to, I should have been approaching Indianapolis. But Indianapolis never came. How did I miss a whole city? Was I really that out of it? I kept checking my phone every time a notification came through. I know I shouldn't while I'm driving, but I was just desperate for one of them to be Paul. For him to give me some explanation. Some reason to believe that this was all just a big misunderstanding. But it was just the group chat with my friends from work, talking about the latest thing they'd heard about the company. I got off the interstate about 30 miles from the river. It was all local roads from here. Winding through southern Indiana, crossing the Ohio River at Madison, and then, a few short miles up the river, a big wooden sign, painted in bright colors, Welcome to Marquee. I decided to stay at a hotel while I was in town. I didn't want to take up a whole room in my mom's house for a week, maybe longer. The truth is, I didn't know how long I'd be staying here. I made great money in Chicago, but I also accumulated a lot of debt. I counted on that bonus at the end of each year to pay it down, but that wasn't happening this year. I'd be able to start over, sure, and even if Paul and I didn't work things out, I would eventually be fine. It would just take some time. I arrived before check-in, but they had some rooms ready, and they let me go ahead and get settled in. I got unpacked, and I took a shower. And then I just laid down on the hotel bed for a long time, before I finally got up the nerve to pick up the phone and let my mom know I'd made it to town. I made the drive to my mom's house, and when I rang the doorbell, my dad answered. My mom and dad split up years ago. As far as I knew, they hadn't spoken in ages. She said they wanted to surprise me. They'd been talking again for a while, but didn't want to get my hopes up. Life's full of surprises, she said. And sometimes, the biggest surprises come from the things you think you understand the most. Honestly, I don't know what to do with all of this. And to make it worse, she'd invited a couple of aunts and uncles and a few of her friends for the occasion. I wasn't expecting a full house. I don't have any doubts that she was happy to see me, but it all kind of felt like a performance. I was swarmed with greetings, and there was food everywhere. I was glad for that part, at least. My blood sugar gets low sometimes, and now was one of those times. I tried to put on a happy face, but my mind was still back in Chicago. I was less than 24 hours removed from maybe losing my job, maybe a breakup, maybe losing my apartment, and now, maybe my dad's back? I was drained before I got here, but after the first hour, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to stick it out the rest of the night here. But I had to stay long enough to be polite. 
I snuck away for a few minutes to check my phone. The group chat I had with my coworkers was going wild, but there wasn't anything in the way of actual information about our futures at the company. Just a lot of speculation and rumor. No missed calls. No texts from Paul. Even if he was being held in custody, you get a phone call, right? It's been two days. He'd have to have been charged by now, or they'd have to let him go, right? Is that a thing? What if he hasn't called because maybe it's true and he's ashamed? I wasn't ready to go down that road yet. There were a couple messages from my closest work friends. We had a separate group chat just for us. They were asking if we could get together for drinks. God, I didn't even tell them I'd left town. I'm actually back home for a few days. I put my phone back in my pocket. It was surprisingly warm out. A bright orange sunset on the horizon. You could forget that it was a week before Christmas in a place like this. With the sun going down, it meant I could make an excuse to leave soon. I'd driven all day, after all. I braced myself and went back inside. And after another hour, I made my rounds, said goodbye to everyone. My mom and dad made plans to meet me for brunch tomorrow. Good luck, bakery. It was my favorite when I lived here. We'd have some time to catch up then. Just the three of us. I drove around for a long time after I left my mom's house. It didn't take long before I was out of town. My headlights bright on the gently winding county roads, up and down the rolling hills of the Ohio Valley. The roads we used to drive aimlessly when we were bored kids. I ended up at the intersection of Route 25 and Vandermeer Road, a secluded stop sign where the two roads met in a dense patch of forest. There used to be a memorial here at this intersection for Elisa Harris. Every town has a ghost story or a tragedy. Elisa was ours. She was my age but she died in high school. She died a terrible death. Her family had maintained the memorial. It had always felt really permanent to me. Things change, I guess. Maybe the town didn't want to be known for what happened to Elisa anymore. They wanted to move on. Who knows? Maybe I forgot where it was and I passed the thing. I haven't been out to this part of the county in a long time, but I know it's the right place. It's the last place you can turn around before you get to the bridge. The bridge where it happened. I snapped out of it and turned around, back toward town. That night I had trouble sleeping. I couldn't stop thinking of Elisa Harris. Marquis is a small town, in the middle of nowhere, and there's a thing people say about small towns. Everything happens later there. 
The satanic panic in the 80s and 90s came late to Marquis. And in a lot of ways, it never really left. The satanic panic was that period when the media went crazy about alleged satanic cults posing as daycares and abusing kids. Backwards messages and heavy metal music, ritual murder, almost all of it was fake. But after the media and parents freaked out about backwards messages and heavy metal albums, some bands started doing them for publicity. When you sensationalize something, it has a way of making itself real. And that's what happened to Marquis when I was in high school. Elisa was one of those kids in the middle. She wasn't popular, but she wasn't at the bottom of the social ladder either. She and her friends mostly kept to themselves. But junior year, she had a class with Emery Dunn and Jacob Keller. She got partnered up with them for an assignment. Emery and Jacob were popular kids, and Elisa spent a lot of time with them out of school on their group assignment. She started falling in with their group and spent less and less time with her old friends. It seemed like just another harmless example of ever-changing teenage social dynamics. That was the winter of 2006. By the time summer came around, she had fully become one of the popular kids. But one morning, she didn't come home after going out with her friends. She was missing for a few days. And then, one horrible morning, her body was found under a bridge out in the county. She'd been murdered, and in a horrific way. They found her at a bridge at the end of Vandermeer Road, a place that already had its own folklore. The kids called it Ghost Bridge. It was a wooden bridge high up over some railroad tracks. Kids used to go out there to party and hook up. The thing is, police had already searched the area around Ghost Bridge. Elisa's body wasn't there. That meant whoever did this to her. They brought her body there after the first police search. The town was on edge. Who could have done this to her? We didn't have to wait long for an answer. A few days later, Emery and Jacob were brought in and charged with her murder. But that wasn't the end of the story. A few days later, Caitlin Walker was brought to the station for questioning, and she was charged too. And a few days after that, Amy Lander was also charged. Somehow, right under the noses of their parents and teachers... A group of the popular kids had started practicing occult rituals. It was apparently inspired by Jacob's Sunday school classes about the dangers of Satanism in popular culture. The four of them started out drinking and goofing off, shouting out satanic prayers, angsty teenage bullshit. But they kept talking each other up and they started sacrificing animals. And then started grooming Elisa with the help of a lot of drugs, alcohol and imagination Emery, Amy Jacob and Caitlin had lost touch with reality and 
Elisa became their virgin sacrifice, and her death was supposed to guarantee that the wishes they made over her body would come true. I can't imagine what it must have felt like when that fantasy world you'd built around yourself comes crashing down in the cold light of reality. When you end up in the back of a police car. When you realize your life is over. And for what? Caitlin and Amy eventually had their charges dropped. But they moved away, and I heard they changed their names. Emery committed suicide during his first year in prison. And Jacob is still locked up somewhere. It all went through my head as I laid awake, thinking about my current predicament. I felt completely out of control for the first time in my adult life. My fiancé, my job, my home, they were all up in the air. And I had no idea what I was going to do. The next morning, I woke up early, and I stayed in bed scrolling through my phone. I had plans to meet mom and dad at the bakery, but I couldn't get motivated to get out of bed. People were posting photos of the snow in Chicago, and I was wondering whether I'd done the right thing by coming home. I kept scrolling, and I wish I could say that I lost track of time, but the truth is, I was completely aware of it and I let it creep right up to the time I told myself I needed to start getting ready, and then passed it. When the guilt of being late finally got worse than my reluctance to be there, I let mom know I'd be late. I wanted to just throw on sweatpants and go, but if I know anything about my mom, it's that keeping up appearances is essential. I showered, I put my makeup on, and I got dressed. I was leaving the hotel lobby 10 minutes after I was supposed to arrive at the bakery. By the time I arrived, they'd been through the line and were already seated at a table. My mom stood for a hug when I approached. Oh dear, sorry we didn't wait for you. The place was filling up so fast. I looked around, and the bakery was half empty. My dad spoke up. We went ahead and ordered for you. I hope that's okay. There was a plate for me on the table. Mom, you shouldn't have, I said. I know, but they're closing up soon, and it was the last one. A crunchy, buttery crust. Sweet, almost too sweet. Vanilla, custard filling, cream cheese... Ugh, there is nothing in the world like a chess bar. Oh, how's your blood sugar? My mom asked. It's fine, I told her. Probably even a little low. No wonder you had a hard time getting out of bed, she said. We stayed for a long time. It wasn't as bad as the night before. I still didn't bring up everything that had happened back in the city. I don't know what was keeping me from doing it. Maybe just the fact that everything was still up in the air. It was hard enough to bring it up once. So why do it now, when I know it's going to change and I'll have to tell it again anyway? I think I'm just making excuses. The bakery was starting to empty out, 
so we said our goodbyes and made plans to see each other tomorrow. I picked up our plates and mugs and took them back to the dirty dish counter by the cashier. I heard a voice call my name. I looked over and behind the counter, and I saw a familiar face. But I couldn't place him. Amber Hensley. That's me. Hey, you? Oh my god, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's okay, it's Luke Turner. We went to high school together. I'm so sorry. How have you been? You look different. Yeah, I uh, grew up a little bit. And you're working at the bakery. Actually co-owner now. Oh, that's so cool. Well, the chess bar was delicious. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. How long are you back in town? Oh, just a few days. Staying through Christmas? Yeah, I think so. Maybe. A lot of things are in flux for me at the moment. I'm sorry to hear that. You should come back by, though. I'll make you a special one. Oh, well, that's a really sweet offer, but I'm actually with someone. Oh, well, I didn't mean it like that. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to assume. No, actually, I totally meant it that way. I don't know why I said I didn't. Oh. It's weird now, isn't it? No, no, it's not weird. I'm just, you know. How about I quit before I dig myself any deeper? Well, no harm done, and maybe I'll see you around before I go. Yeah. Are you going to the winter soiree at Marquee Hall? Oh, I don't know. I honestly forgot that was a thing. You should think about it. I'll be working a table, so maybe I'll see you there. Yeah, maybe you will. After that awkward encounter, I went back to the hotel and spent the rest of the day vegging on the bed and binging shows. Somewhere around mid-afternoon, my phone started buzzing. It was Jenny Elliott, a girl I vaguely remembered from high school. She said her mom told her I was in town and could use some company. She asked if I wanted to come out dress shopping with them tomorrow and then to the soiree later in the week. I politely declined, but thanked her. Why was my mom trying to set me up with people I barely knew when I lived here? As night started to fall, the world outside the hotel window grew hazy. I found my thoughts drifting back again to Elisa Harris, the girl who was murdered by her classmates. I remember the night it happened because of how foggy it was. A heavy mist was settling over town even before the night fell. I remember walking home from school thinking it felt so surreal, so eerie out. It was one of those mild winter nights, and once darkness had fallen, I stood on my parents' back porch with a mug of hot chocolate, watching the world around me get fuzzier. At about the same time I was on my back porch, Elisa and her new friends were driving through that fog out to Ghost Bridge. They parked in the middle of the road and walked out onto the bridge. The wood would have been damp and slippery under their feet, and she still would have had no idea what was about to happen. I 
I tried to shake the thought of Elisa from my mind. I texted Paul again. Are you home yet? It was day three, and I still hadn't heard from him. My phone buzzed, and I snatched it up, thinking it might be Paul. It wasn't. One of my closest co-workers back in Chicago was asking how I was doing. I took the opportunity to open up and let out everything I'd kept bottled up. I told her about how weird it was back home, how it felt like I'd stumbled into some idealized version of my hometown. My mom and dad back together, the memorial to Elisa gone, my old classmate growing up into some Ryan Gosling lookalike. It's like I'm trapped in a holiday movie. Like it's trying to make everything right, but it's just a little bit off, you know? I regretted that last one as soon as it sent. A few minutes later, my phone buzzed again. Hey, I don't really know how to do this, but I thought you should see something. She'd sent a photo, a screenshot of an Instagram post. Annalisa, the closest thing I had to a nemesis at work. She worked in finance with Paul. It took me a second to figure out what I was supposed to be looking at. She was dressed nice. She looked good. She always did. The timestamp said it was posted a couple hours ago. And then it hit me. Hard. Directly in my gut. The background of the photo. She was in my apartment. She was with Paul. I called him and his phone rang until it went to voicemail. So I called him again. And again. I was furious. I was humiliated. And her, of all people, she would have known when she posted that photo that someone would put it together. She knew what she was doing. I was seething with anger. I'd been waiting around this hotel room to hear from him while he'd been doing God knows what with Annalisa. I picked up my phone and I found Jenny's number. I think I'll tag along with them after all. Outside my window, the mist was settling in. Over empty streets, in the spaces between buildings. I allowed myself to go back in time again, to the memory of that night back in high school. I remembered something. Weren't there rumors that a fifth person had been involved? Something they could never prove. I opened my laptop and I googled Elisa's name. There was nothing. A few people with the same name, A LinkedIn profile for someone in California. A staff page of a company in Florida. There was nothing about Elisa Harris in Marquis. How is that possible? In my imagination, I saw a car barreling down Vandermeer Road. Headlights cutting through the fog. A girl who was the same age as I was back then. A series of events already in motion, and an ending she didn't deserve. 
Home for the Holidays Part 2 is already in your feed. 